Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 14th, 2015. This is episode uh, 1643 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday, and we got a full week this week. You got ripped off last week. I know, guys, I was off two days, and I'm sorry. Uh, sometimes stuff like that has to happen, but I have got a full week in store for you. Strap in, because we are going to have a, a kind of a mixture of the new TSP that's got all this new great information and some vintage jack as well, especially tomorrow on Tuesday when it's just a gist jack show. I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a throwback feel tomorrow. Today, we're going to be doing something we've been doing for a long time. This, this does go back to the early days of TSP. I'm just able to put a little more detail into it now because I'm not in a car anymore swerving around trying to avoid hitting ass clowns like I was for the first two years of the show. This is your feedback show. This is where you e email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com and you put TSPC in the subject line followed by anything you want and you then you know send me a story, a news uh, thing, a question, a comment, a video, whatever you want and I try to pick about eight of those a week to get onto the Monday show. Can't get them all on, but I do read them all and a lot of stuff you guys send me that don't end up on the air do end up on the TSP Facebook forum, on the TSP main website, uh, webpage for Facebook, the fan page. Uh, they end up on Twitter. They end up all kinds of places and they end up peppered into the content of the show. So keep them coming, even if I don't get them on the air. If you've asked a question and you haven't got an answer, keep sending it to me until I break down and say I'm going to answer this guy's question. It's okay. I won't get upset with you. A lot of times I answer questions directly by email if they're short and simple questions to answer as well. So keep them coming. Again, TSPC in the subject line. And I'm going to tell you something else. Over the last, like, four weeks, I have had, well, let's just say it's been interesting. It's been interesting. I've been stressed out. A lot of things going on, a lot of stuff getting kind of missed and skipped over. Uh, a couple important emails that I eventually found that got missed somehow. If you've emailed me in the last four weeks and it's something you expected to hear back from me on and you didn't, please email me again. Please make sure TSPC is in the subject line. And anybody I didn't get back to, let me personally apologize to. Uh, anybody that didn't feel they got the, 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 the exceptional level of customer service I usually provide, let me apologize for that too. We all have rough times. I just had one. It wasn't anything infinitely bad happening. It was just a conglomeration of things going on. So I do my best to do the best I can for you all the time. If I failed any of you in the last 30 days, I apologize. And again, resend those emails if you have not heard back from me. Uh, before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey Guy, the actual one, the only Berkey Guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey Guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting and if there's a problem that gets corrected fast 
and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. The year, of course, is the year 1643 because it's episode 1643. And Alex Shrugged, as usual, has quite a few cool things queued up for us today. 
Uh, he's got two stories and then some critical discoveries. I'm going to read the critical discoveries first, then I'm going to give you the two segments, and I'm going to pick one of them to read. Some critical discoveries. Fiji Islands are discovered in this year, 1643, by, I guess, us, because, uh, well, I mean, really, somebody knew they were there. Christmas Island is discovered, and Santa's happy about that, I guess. Tasmania is discovered by a guy named Tasman. What a coincidence. Uh, New Zealand discovered by the same guy. He, he named it Staten Island. <laughs> Australia's long been discovered. The Dutch found it in 1606. The two segments I have for you today are either the War of Three Kingdoms and Remembering the Alamo and the White Slaves of Barbary and the Mark of the Nazarene. I'm going to read the War of the Three Kingdoms and Remember the Alamo. Ever since the Bishops' War ended between Presbyterian Scots and the Anglican English, the Irish Catholics have been feeling uncomfortable. Peace between the Scots and English means turning their unused armies loose upon Ireland. Most Englishmen see Ireland as a wilderness populated with primitive, uncivilized people, so the English and the Scottish Protestants feel justified in civilizing it. But the Irish Catholics can't tell the difference between the process of civilizing and the process of stealing everything they have. With the ongoing British Civil War, the Catholics make a deal with King Charles I to keep their lands. That frees up the Royalist armies to fight the Civil War down south. But after King Charles loses the war, Lord Proctor Oliver Cromwell will remember the Irish Catholics who sided with the king. By the end of the century, only 14% of Ireland will remain in Catholic hands. My take by Alex Shrug. Well, I make the Irish Catholics better than they actually were. Certainly they were being taken advantage of, and certainly their land was being confiscated. On the other hand, the Catholics massacred an enormous number of Protestants during the Irish Rebellion. The exact number is lost in competing claims, but everyone agrees it was a massacre. In the modern day, if you ask most people when the troubles in Ireland began, very few would point to the 1600s and the imposition of the Protestant Ulster plantation on the Irish Catholics But like the cries of remember the Alamo, people rally to the call, even if they can't remember how the fight at the Alamo got started in the first place. It was a pivotal battle in the Texas Revolution for independence from Mexico. For your information, Texas won. My take on this. Have you noticed how many of these wars with all this massive death and casualty come from religious things? And, it, you know... I know when I say that, there's a lot of you guys out there that are deeply religious that go, why is he going to do this? I, you know, my problem's not with religion. It's really not. You can believe whatever you want. You can tell other people to believe whatever you want, and I don't really care. I'm okay with that. Here's where the problem breaks down. Here's where religion turns into death. And this is why, uh, for all the, the flack I give that we, we have a government with too much power based on our Constitution, at least our... Founders did understand this one thing. And that's why they separated church and state. Religion always ends up bloody when it goes hand in hand with the state. If you doubt me, read the, the other segment today, The White Slaves of Barbary and the Mark of the Nazarene, about what happened in 1643 and about what's happening right now. There is no place for the force of the state joining with the beliefs of faith. There isn't. Statism is already a destructive enough religion without adding another religion to it. The, the problems that come out of religion are never from the religions themselves. It's when the people with the belief, or more accurately usually the people that, be, that use the beliefs of others within a, face, uh, within a faith, marry that to the power of the state And then use the power of the state to enforce the will of one religion 
upon many people. And again, statism is already enough of a religion by itself. It doesn't need a Muslim faith or a Christian faith or a Jewish faith or any other faith at all to murder and kill and steal and use force against against you know, against people to make them do what they don't want to do, even when they're not harming anybody. The state is capable of doing all that by itself. And every time a state joins with religion, everything gets worse. Which is why your founder said, the two do not belong together. You can be religious and serve in government, but don't bring your religion into government from the standpoint of using the hand of the state to enforce your religious will on your fellow man and your fellow woman. My take by Jack Spierko. And that's a lesson that we have yet to learn from history. We'll even talk about how it keeps creeping back in today in a later segment. Before I do that, I want to make up for a mistake last week. Again, I have had quite a few of them lately. Bob Wells Plan of the Week. There'll be two this week, one today and one tomorrow. Today is the Methley Plum. I put it in the show notes last week, but I didn't read it. The Methley Plum is a highly adaptable fruit uh, that will work from zones five through nine. It's a juicy, sweet plum with red flesh, reddish purple skin, and great flavor. It's an attractive tree that's vigorous and bears heavy. It ripens early and is very cold-hardy. This is Bob Wells' personal favorite when it comes to plums. Find this plant and more at BombwellsNursery.com. Bob, Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as other hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Here's my issue that I've had with the Methley Plum so far. So far. I'm not saying it's going to be all the time. Uh, a couple of years ago, I planted several of these. Uh, for all the losses I've had, all the abuse by grasshoppers I've had, uh, all the issues with diseases that we had this year with all the rain, these things are like honey badger trees. They really are. They don't, they're just like, whatever, dude. I don't care. I'm staying, I'm sticking around, and I'm going to grow. And in the spring, they flesh out with beautiful blossoms, like billions of these little white Beautiful plum blossoms. The problem I've had, especially this year, we had a mild winter, then it got severe, and then it got mild again. During the first mild period, it went and blossomed in like February. And I was like, ugh, ugh, you know, like pulling at the shirt collar. This is not going to be good. And sure enough, man, this big old ice storm came in and killed all the blossoms. So it was like it was too early. Will that happen every year? I don't know. This plum might actually do better either further south or further north, where the winter stays a little more stable to keep it from coming out too early, or when it gets mild, it's just mild, and the winter's mild in the first place. I have seen these trees hold their blossoms through light frosts. I'm talking 30-ish degrees, right around 30 degrees, but like that brief where it hits 30, but it doesn't really stay there, where you get it just in the morning. I've seen them hold, but when they get hit, with a hard freeze, or when they get hit with like a freezing rain, which is what happened to them, those blossoms just wilt and fall off. Tree does fine. Tree has no problem. But to get production, you can't lose your blossoms. So the, the, the plum that I've had that has blossomed out a little bit later, even with the mild winter, that's very similar to this is Bruce. So if you're in my area, you might want to go with Bruce or do a Bruce and a Methley. They're both great plums. They are fantastic eating um, and then they are really, really prolific, and they are really, really tough, and they are really well-adapted trees. Anyway, that's just a little add-on there. Um, 
Next up, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, you want to help support the show? Join the MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. Lots of great benefits. Lots of great discounts. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a discount at the MSB. Just email me before you, not after you join with TSPC service discount in the subject line. And I will get back to you with a discount code to thank you for your service and save more money on an already great product. And remember, this show is largely member-supported. The way we're able to do this show every day, the way I'm able to, to dig into all this content, the way I'm able to put in you know eight hours of work for every one- to two-hour show is because of the MSB. Without that, I, I couldn't do this. There's no way this show would produce the revenue that is necessary to be able to give it my full-time effort. So if you love the show, please consider joining if you haven't yet. On that note, I have a lifetime member sale coming out on Wednesday. $300, bucks, one time lifetime member instead of $50 bucks a year or the discounted price for, for first responders. I do not do discounts on the lifetime membership. I don't do it. Uh, I only sell, I think I'm going to do $15. I might do $20. It depends. We'll decide by Wednesday morning what we're going to do. It's going to be up, go, gone, done. And they'll sell out, so I don't discount things that are going to sell out. Um, but it's a way that you can kind of join like an elite club. Uh, there's not that many lifetime members out there. And uh, there, I'm going to start doing some things that are a little bit extra for lifetime members very, very soon. Uh, but that's it. Wednesday morning, 9 a.m. Central Time. A post will go live, and it will be a free-for-all. And when it's sold out, the site would just tell you, sorry, it's sold out. But if you want to be a lifetime member, that'll be your chance. Um, next up, for the uh, October event, I have a paid helper position open for October. Uh, if you email me with TSPC helper, uh, you can apply to be that helper. This is how this works, though. This is not come and take the trash out and participate in most of the classes. Uh, we have two people that help us with the cooking, the cleaning, all of that stuff, and Dorothy does that. And we looked at it, and we looked at this event and went, this is so jam-packed, we really need a, th we need a third helper. This is a paid position. That means that you report to Dorothy. That means you work from breakfast until cleanup after dinner. Uh, that means you'll be here for the barter blanket. You'll have all kinds of interaction. You'll get to see everything, but you will not be taking advantage of most of the classes or anything like that. There may be some, some rest periods and breaks and stuff where you can kind of get involved. But all in all, it's helping to put the food out, helping to set the food up, taking the garbage out, making sure the water's topped off. It is a paid staff position for three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Helper can be local and drive in every day. The helper can be from out of town if you want to be. Come in and camp here. But it's and again, it's completely up to you. The evening stuff will be wide open for you, but it'll be a work. I just want to be clear about that. It's a paid position. <laughs> When you look at the hours, it's probably less than minimum wage, right? Paid cash, done. But if you want to be here and you can't afford to come, this is one way you can do that if you're willing to work and you know help us out. It's not hard. It's just long. Uh, and it is a lot of fun, and the staff has a lot of fun, and we do recognize the staff. So, hey, uh, again, just email me, TSPC Helper, and let me know if you'd like to be that person. Tell me a little about yourself, and we'll pick somebody out of whoever applies. Next up, I want to real quick tell you about uh, what didn't happen last week. What was supposed to happen last week is Season two of the Duck Chronicles. And uh, Metzer made a mistake and sent my ducks. I don't know where. I don't know who got my ducks. But they didn't come to me. Uh, the girl that packed it was talked to and said they must have got strapped to another box, so somebody got 60 extra ducks. 
My goal with the Duck Chronicles this time around is to start right where we did last time, going to the post office, picking up new ducks, and introducing them to the flock all the way through again. It worked out really well last time. A different season this time. Instead of winter, it's fall. It should be awesome. Uh, and hopefully they'll get here tomorrow, and there'll be video up on the TSP YouTube channel, Duck Chronicles Season 2. Um, assuming that everything works out. Sometimes post office make mistakes. Sometimes vendors make mistakes. That said, I still think Metzer is fantastic. I've been talking to Ashley there this morning. Uh, they're being packaged right now. Nothing is shipped yet, but everything is slated to go out. Uh, they make sure there's not going to be an error again. And yes, I'm still trying to get John Metzer on the Survival Podcast for an interview. I never hear back about that, though. Next up, let's uh, talk about something that's going on out there right now that everybody wants to make a big deal about. I'm not even going to link to any news stories because there's more of it out there than uh, than, than I want to see. But I just want to talk real, real quick. This will be like a two-minute piece on this Kim Davis thing. Kim Davis is this clerk uh, in Kentucky that, that uh, refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And there's a whole war brewing about this thing on both sides of the issue. And, and, and I don't think anybody's actually told the American people the whole story, the simple whole story of this and why it's all bullshit and why you shouldn't even be paying attention to it and why she spent six days in jail not as a hero but as a bigot that got in the way of the state complying with a federal mandate. As much as I don't like government. Remember, I'm an anarchist. I don't think the state should be involved in this at all. I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But if you're going to work for the state, then you do the state's bidding. If you're going to be paid for with taxpayers' dollars, then you, you do what the state says you have to do. And what people are saying is she stood up against the federal government under Kentucky state law. But it was a Kentucky court that said, you must comply with this. The state of Kentucky has accepted that this is to be complied with. But let's put all that aside. Let's put all of your emotions for or against same-sex marriage on the, on the bookshelf for just a second. Let's examine what really happened here. Kim Davis was never, ever, ever forced or told that she had to personally issue any license to anybody. I want you to think, America, I want you to think for just a few seconds. How many times... In your adult life, especially if you're in your 30s or 40s, have you had to write a check to your county clerk for something? Whether it's tags for a vehicle or something like that, okay? How many times have you had to go down to the county clerk's office and get something done? Probably quite a few times. Now a lot more stuff's done online. But if you're, again, 30 or 40, and you know you had your first car, and you had to redo the registration and stuff like that, anything that went through your county clerk's office, you went down to the clerk's office, And you wrote a check, gave me your paperwork, whatever. And Now, how many times did you actually talk? How many times, think, how many times did you actually see the, the clerk that you made the check out to? For instance, here, you know, Betsy Price in Tarrant County, right? Now, I've never seen Betsy Price, but I've written her a lot of checks to her office. But I've never seen her. I go in there, there's 20 people, take a number, wait in line, whatever, sitting on their ass, milking the clock, doing their job. So what actually happened here? What actually happened here was that Kim Davis not only said, I won't do this, she told the people in her office, all the people that work for her, you won't do this either. She refused to allow the licenses to be issued by staff members who said, I'll do it, I don't care. She interfered with that. 
Then a judge said, you, go, you can't do this. Your office has to issue these. She said, I won't do it. He said, I'm giving you a court order to do it. She said, no. He said, okay, fine. You can sit your ass in jail for a while under contempt of court. Don't act like that's never happened for anything before. Like it's unusual for someone to go to jail for contempt of court for a few days to cool off and think about the order. So they threw her ass in jail for six days. Then, as soon as this happens, the people in her office, her subclerks, go, well, I don't want to go to jail. And I was willing to do this anyway. So they start issuing the licenses. So her attorney, not her, her attorney goes to the court and says, hey, guys, the office is issuing these things now. Can you let her out? And the court says, that's fine. As long as she's not going to interfere with that again, we don't care if she personally does it. So they let her out. And then Mike Huckabee flies in, you know, like, 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 as though he's Al Sharpton coming to a civil rights demonstration. And we're standing with Kim. And Oath Keepers acts like a bunch of morons saying, we're going to defend Kim with guns. Really? Really, idiots? That's what you're going to do? This is stupidity. This is stupidity. This lady is not a hero. She's a bigot that's selective about which sins she objects to. If you're looking at this woman's background, this is not exactly Mother Teresa here. Oh, by the way, for all you Republicans championing Kim Davis, <laughs> she's a Democrat. I don't know if anybody told you that. But here's the deal. She never had to personally do jack shit. All she had to do was not get in the way of staff members who were willing to do what they were asked to do from doing it, and she put her fat ass in the way. That's the whole story. But no one, no one told you that till I did. Because no one's interested in you knowing the whole story. No one's interested in you figuring out that this doesn't have to be a big debate. And no one wants to really talk about this. As I said, I'm an anarchist. Why is the state issuing license to marry in the first place? Again, why is the state doing this? Let's, let's talk a little bit here, just for a little shorter history lesson, going back um, to the United States coming into, like, after the Civil War up until the 1960s. The reason we started issuing marriage license in the United States of America was to prevent things like interracial marriage. That's the only reason we ever started doing it. The country got along fine for a long time with no one, no one issuing marriage licenses. And all of a sudden, we start doing it. And that's like, you know, here's the big thing. Here's the big thing. Basically, the Supreme Court, in its majority, held that marriage was a human right. Okay, great. Then you shouldn't be issuing license for it. Do you understand that? I, com I completely agree with the court. Marriage, your choice to who you marry, what terms you marry them under, how you conduct your marriage, that is your choice and yours alone, and no one should be involved. And if you're a religious person, and your religion calls for certain things within your marriage, then that's between you, your partner, God, and your faith. For instance, if you're a Catholic and you decide you want to get a divorce, they'll make you go through about five years of complete pain and misery before they will officially say it's an annulment and allow you to remarry in their church. That's the church's business. I don't agree with it, but that's the church's business. And you are voluntarily a member of that church. So you can do whatever you want there. The state doesn't belong in marriage. If marriage is a human right, then there should be no license. There should be no license for it. If free speech is a human right, which we say it is in this country, which we say it is in this country, then we don't have a license for free speech. Free speech is free speech. Do you understand that? And those that will say, but there's no mention of marriage in the Constitution. 
I have a little thing to read to you right now. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Let me read that again. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. What does that mean? That means just because the Constitution doesn't say something is a right, doesn't mean that it isn't a right. If it's a right, it's a right. See, our founders and, and the folks that got together and put together the Bill of Rights, the first, that's the Ninth Amendment, for those that don't know, they put that Bill of Rights up and said, we need to make sure we add these to the Constitution. We're saying, hey, look, here's all these things we think could be attacked. So we're going to say you can't do, the government can't do this. The government, have you noticed, like the first ten amendments are all things the government cannot do to you. They are negative rights. Or they are negative, they are negative components in regard to rights. In other words, they restrict the state, not the individual. Okay? So the reason this was a hot topic is a lot of people said, hey, look, guys, if we leave something out or, you know, stuff changes, And things come up that we never thought of. They'll say, it's not in the Constitution, so the government can do it. So, two amendments were added to the eight that we, we talk about the most. The ninth and the tenth. And the ninth basically states, very simply, if something is fundamental to human rights, the government should not interfere with it, period. And the fact that it doesn't appear in the Constitution is no justification for doing so. So, I would ask you, no matter what side of this issue you've been on up till now, to ask yourself a simple question. Is marriage a human right? Is it a human right? Does it apply to humans outside of the Constitution, outside of government, outside of the state? Is it a traditional human right? That people for eternity, as long as there's been people, have chosen in of themselves to join in a bond of marriage, whether you like it or not. Is it a human right? If it's a human right, licensure has zero, zero, zero place in it. And by the way, that means our federal Supreme Court is in error. The day they decided to proclaim it as a human right, they should have also proclaimed the government had no right to license or restrict it in any way, shape, or form. That it should be between individuals. And the government could choose which of those unions in its legislature to recognize if it offered something or not. It might depend. Who knows? You have to work that out. You have to work that out. What if some guy marries his horse? Whatever, dude. Really? That's your objection here? That's your objection? What if one guy marries five women? He's going to have a hell of a divorce, man. That's all I can say. You know, let's not worry about these tiny little handfuls of people out there. What if somebody tries to marry an eight-year-old girl? That would be statutory rape and illegal, apart from marriage law. Use your common sense and think, guys. That's all I'm going to say. And that's it for me and Kim Davis. Don't email me about her no more. Okay, next up, a totally unrelated topic, things that make you go, and wonder what's really going on here. This is from an anonymous person that doesn't want to be named, probably for fear of losing their job. Uh, and it's about food, even though this person doesn't work in the food industry, and it makes you go, when you think about it again. Okay, related to your instructions to remove meat from the supermarket packaging as soon as possible, 
probably another reason. I work in a factory that specializes in making breathable sheets of plastic-based material that go into things like disposable diapers, baby wipes, kitchen wipes, etc. A few years ago, we got a contract to make rolls of base material for those absorbent pads you find in supermarket meat packages. I think the industry refers to them as chicken diapers. Ugh. On our end, it was just layers of our sheet material that got treated with some kind of chemical to improve its ability to absorb standing water and blood from inside the packages of raw meat. Working on the opposite end of the building, I never learned the name of this chemical. Uh, by the way, if anybody knows the name of this chemical, I'd love to know what it is. You can email me and tell me, TSPC in the subject line. Uh, but nearly everyone who worked within 20 yards of a machine making that product always ended their work days with burning eyes and sore throats. Management kept reassuring us that everything was OSHA compliant and FDA approved, but I'm fairly certain this product is no longer made in any U.S. facilities. For all I know, the final product may indeed be safe, at least to their rationalizing. Safer than having seminella juice leaking all over your car, fridge, and countertop. Their decision to discontinue it may have been purely cost-related, but it's worth remembering that thousands of serious injuries and death occur every year in OSHA-compliant workspaces, and even prescription drug Vioxx was FDA-approved before it was eventually linked to something like 50,000 deaths. Take it for what it's worth. Anonymous listener in the no non-wovens non industry. Okay, um... Yeah. So does this chemical still get used? I don't know. Is it just being used somewhere else? I don't know. Do they make them in China now where nobody's allowed to bitch? I don't know. But I think that's something we have to consider with our food supply. It's not just the food itself that has problems. It's the food handling, right? And this is another reason to buy local as much as possible. To buy, I don't even care if you're buying conventionally fed meat. A conventionally fed piece of steak or chicken or whatever that gets out some, that's not in a CAFO, that's not standing in its own manure, that's not packaged in cellophane and, and wrapped in chicken diapers with things that make people's eyes burn, is probably immensely more healthy and, and safe for you to eat than, than the, the supermarket food is. Now, again, I'm not a purist. There's a lot of stuff we buy from the supermarket. We, we, we're limited to how many suppliers we can find and what we can afford like everybody else. But at least look what's around. Look what's available. Because, yeah, I would rather eat a chicken that was tractored or panic-shifted and fed Purina friggin' grower than I would one that comes out of a chicken house of horrors from Tyson, packed in this plastic crap, and when you open it, it stinks. Any day of the week, I would take the first option over the second. Would I prefer a Joel Salatin, non-GMO, fed, fed on the best pasture on planet Earth chicken? Sure I would. And if there was one right next door to me, I'd go buy it. There isn't, but I can do better. I can do better than factory meat, and you can too. This is just another reason, like a peripheral reason. Like how many, if we actually ever really looked at all the things that go into and on our food, from, from tip to tail and packaging, and processing, all of it included, how many chemicals are, are being put into the bodies of people in this country today without our knowledge? They're doing harm to us. Look at the cancer rates. Right? Everybody wants to say the autism rates are linked to vaccines. I'm not going to say there's no link whatsoever, but I'll tell you what. I think the food that you're eating and passing you know, through to your children as, as a mother, the food that our kids are fed, what's in baby food? 
Have you have we even asked ourselves what's in baby food? What what's being done to mothers when they're eating and thinking, well, I know I'll breastfeed my child. <laughs> well, you're breastfeeding them whatever you ate, guys. You really are. I should say girls. It's sexist. No, I, last time I checked, men don't breastfeed. They, we don't do that yet. Okay, right? Seriously, I mean, we 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 have got to take more control over what we eat. Please make that part of your life because I think your survival, especially in your your, your older years, uh, depends on it. And the health of your children, if you're younger and about to start a family, depends on it as well. Continuing to put variety into today's show, um, let's let's look at a, a totally different question again. A political one, and in a political opinion one that has nothing to do with policy, just has to do with prediction. Question for Jack from Justin. Has anything changed for you when it comes to the presidential election? And if not, do you still consider Scott Walker to be the strongman candidate for president? You predicted that Scott Walker was likely the next president. You also predicted that it would be a strongman that will win. The closest thing I've seen to a strongman in this race is Bernie Sanders. Really? That's your strongman? Anyway, he actually terrifies me when all the rest... I find it be more of a joke than anything. If my Facebook feed is any indicators, a lot of people are taking this guy seriously and really like what he has to say. Uh, and as a follow-up question, if Bernie Sanders was the Democratic nomination, would you vote for the least bad option by voting for the Republican nominee? I will not vote for anybody for president in the coming presidential election. There will be no one there that is worthy of my endorsement, and I am not dumb enough to believe that my vote will matter. Because my vote's not going to matter, and I'll tell you what, neither is yours. I know I'm not supposed to say that because it's the truth, and the truth often pisses people off. But the next president, we will know who it's going to be before Election Day. Trust me. The polls will tell us like they almost always do. Now, let's go back to Scott Walker. Um, I'll tell you what. I'm mystified by Donald Trump's success. I, I can't imagine that this guy's actually become as successful as he has. I actually tell you right now, the smart money for the Republican nomination is Trump. <sighs> Unless people like really think about what they're doing, which America's not known for doing, uh, Jeb Bush never stood a chance. That's why I picked Walker. Out of the remainder of the field, he was the guy that a compelling story had enough national attention that I thought could win the nomination. Again, I mean, that's not an endorsement. That's a pick. Like picking a football. That's how, that's how I do politics anymore when it comes to these election guys. I just pick them like a football game, and I'm, you know, sometimes I'm not a very good pick. Now, nothing has changed about my belief that it will be a Republican president in the next election. No, nothing is. <clears throat> I, I am I am coming down to a belief that it very well could be Trump v. Sanders. Biden's the wild card. He talks about getting in, talks about it, doesn't do it, whatever. Guy's pulling out like 20 points without actually officially being a candidate. So. You know, but Clinton ain't happening. It ain't happening. I don't care what the polls say. It ain't happening. And if it does, Trump beats Clinton. In a national election, Trump beats Clinton. In a national election, Trump beats Sanders. When when the the older folks and the middle aged folks in the Democratic Party really get a gander of Bernie Sanders, I, I don't think he can win. I, Sanders is honest too, right? This is what this is what's really unusual. If you end up with an election, a presidential election between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, you end up with a, a major conundrum. Two of the worst people that you could ever pick to run the country. At the same time, the most honest two presidential candidates that any living human being has ever seen. 
in the same election. I think the last guy approaching the honesty, though I didn't agree with a lot of his politics, but the last guy approaching the honesty of Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump was probably John Kennedy. Maybe Dwight Eisenhower. But we learned a lot about Dwight after he passed away that wasn't what it seemed on the surface. And, and that's sad, too, really. Because, you know, there's a pretty good documentary, John. I can't remember who the guy is, but the, the, the Ike years. Uh, it's a guy that's done a lot of documentaries like that. It was on Showtime or something like that. It was pretty, pretty interesting about a lot of things that went on behind the scenes. And you can chalk some of that up to having to be the president during the Cold War, et cetera, but... I, I, I don't think that we've ever had a, a presidential candidate that had a chance to be in a general election, that had, in any recent period, that was as honest as Trump or as honest as Sanders. I, I don't like either one of them. But I, I believe that they're telling you the truth every time they open their mouth. Sanders is a socialist. Sanders is a socialist. He sounds like a socialist. He acts like a socialist. He talks like a socialist. Trump is a fascist. Sounds exactly like the, no, no two bits about it. Who, who could have ever seen this? I, I guess not me. I, I guess I didn't do too well on this prediction. Um, but I, I can kind of look at it now and analyze, like picking a football game and then like the underdog wins and you're like, well, how did it happen? You can kind of analyze it. I think the American people are fed up. I think the American people are completely fed up. Everybody wants to chalk up Sanders, you know, rise in the polls to Clinton's continuously destroying her own campaign. Uh, and to college kids wanting free shit. And there is a lot of that. There's a lot of the Sanders swell that is the college-age students being told, you should be able to go to college for free. And, and the ones that, that are they're all supportive of this are, are mainly kids that are already deeply in debt and don't understand, even if he got what he wanted to get done, done, which he ain't going to do, their debt's not going away. You're not going to forgive your debt, dude. They're not. You're still going to owe it. Yeah. And the, the government will garnish your wages to pay it back. You're not getting out of it. Right, So there is a swell from the whole free shit thing with, with Sanders. But when he says he's for all this stuff, he's not lying. He, he really means it. He really means what he's saying. This guy is one of the most honest people. He and Ron Paul were the only two people that were ever willing to call out the Fed chairman in front of their respective bodies. Ron Paul in front of the House and, and, and Bernie in front of the Senate. And call them out on their bullshit. I mean... If there's nothing else, you can appreciate that and you can appreciate the honesty. But the guy is a disaster for, the, for our current economy. The stuff he wants to do cannot work in our economy. In our economic system, it's impossible. The, 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 gov, the, the rest of the government he needs to get it done will never go along with him. Trump? I don't know, guys. I just don't know. It's going to be entertaining, if nothing else. But no, I won't hold my nose and vote for either one of those people. This is how I feel from now on when it comes to voting. Unless I would personally endorse somebody, I won't vote for them because my vote is a personal endorsement. And until such time as there's somebody who I would say, you know what, you know what, I would stand by this person and support them as an individual, not as a lesser of two evils, you don't get my vote. You don't get my endorsement. And that's what a vote is. Do what you want to do, but understand that. When you vote for somebody, you're personally endorsing them.
the next time you vote and you vote for like 40 people you've never heard of because they're all Republicans or Democrats for all these little minor offices that you didn't look at, and I'm not saying all of you do it, but most of you do, think about that. Anyway, it's going to be an interesting election season. I want to pay more attention to football, though, honestly. Let's take another one. Oh, but by the way, if Trump wins, there's your strong man. I mean, that's not something I'm backing down from. Trump would be the ultimate fascist strongman Republican president. Uh, more so than Bush. More so than Walker. More so than anybody. Anybody on that side of the equation. I mean, have you paid attention to what this guy said over the years? Anyway, let's go ahead and take that other one out. Let's talk a little bit more about the food you eat and my favorite people to kick in that world, Monsanto. You know, Monsanto has been found guilty of chemical poisoning? Yeah, in, in Paris, France, by the way. Uh, this is on Reuters. Uh, Lyon, Paris, France, Reuters. A French court upheld a, on, a Thursday, on Thursday a 2012 ruling in which Monsanto was found guilty of chemical poisoning of a French farmer who says he suffered through neurological problems after inhaling the U.S. company's lasso weed killer. A decision by an appeals court in Lyon, southeast France, confirmed the initial judgment. First such case heard in a court in France that ruled Monsanto was responsible for the intoxication and ordered the company to fully compensate the grain grower, Paul Francius. Monsanto's lawyer said the U.S. biotech company would now take the case to French's highest appeal court. Francois says he suffered memory loss, headaches, and stammering after inhaling Monsanto's lasso in 2004, blames the agribusiness giant for not providing adequate warnings on the product label. Lasso is a pre-emergent soil-applied herbicide has been used since the 60s, control grasses and broadleaf weeds in uh, farm fields, was banned in France in 2007 after the product had already been withdrawn in other countries such as Canada, Belgium, and Britain. Monsanto phased out Lasso in the United States several years ago for commercial reasons, the spokesman in France said. Though it once was a top-selling herbicide, it gradually lost popularity, and critics say several studies have shown links to a range of health problems. Monsanto said in a statement after the ruling that experts, including those nominated by the French Civil Court, had not found any causal link between the alleged accidental exposure and the alleged damages in which Francis claims compensation. Company's lawyer, Jean-Daniel Brenzner, said a potential fine to the consummate for the farmer's loss would be decided after the decision of the highest court. But he said that in case any case it would be very low. We are speaking about modest sums of money or even non-existent, he already received indemnities by insurers. And there is a fundamental rule that says that one does not compensate twice for any loss, as Jean-Daniel Bresner said. Anyway, let me, let me tell you, you can read the rest of this you want, but do you know what's really going on here? This is cutting through the bullshit again. This is chump change to Monsanto. They have spent way more money fighting this, way more money fighting this, than this would cost them. Why? Put your little thinking hat on. Think like Spearco. Why? Because they're scared shitless. If this court orders them to pay, and they pay, thereby admitting, like, they probably offered to settle this out of court, make this go away. This guy's pissed. He knows what's being done to other people. He doesn't want to let it go away. If this goes to the highest court in France, and that court says, yes, this is your fault. You did this. You've used this poison, and it, it, it's been exposed to other people. 
it opens up a plethora of potential lawsuits, class action lawsuits against Monsanto. This is you knowingly poisoned people. And if you don't think Monsanto has knowingly poisoned people, you're not paying attention. You're really not paying attention. The people that run that company know full well what they're doing. They don't care. They're not killing you on purpose. They're killing you because it's profitable. We exist in a system where if something is profitable, it happens. And we exist in a system where poisoning people is profitable. That's why Pfizer makes so much damn money. It's okay to poison people in our system. You can make money poisoning people in our, in our financial system, in our economic system. It's okay. It's acceptable. And the more money you make, the more you can prevent people from getting any kind, any kind of restitution from you after you've poisoned them. These are people, these are people that knowingly poisoned the town of Anniston, Alabama. They knew what they were doing. They created birth defects, they caused deaths, they caused cancer rates to go through the roof, and they knew, they absolutely, by their own admission, eventually knew what they were doing. And they've just felt, we gotta do something with it all. So here it is. And we can probably hide it. And when they eventually got caught, and when the court ruled against them, and when there was no further recourse, and when the order came in and they had to pay restitution to the town of Anniston, Alabama, the CEO at the time of Monsanto was interviewed and asked why they hid everything. And he said he was proud of his company because they did what they had to do to protect its shareholders. This is after it's known. You knowingly poisoned this town. You destroyed this town. You destroyed its viability. No one wants to live there now. The, the toxins that they dumped there, even with the cleanup efforts, there's still elevated levels of those toxins there. This isn't from spraying a little bit of herbicide. This is their chemical manufacturing did this, and they knew they were doing it. And when they got caught and they couldn't get away with it, they said we were proud of what we did because we had to. We had a fiduciary responsibility, idiots. And you know what? This is what the American people can't get through their thick skulls. He was right. He was not morally right. Absolutely immoral. Absolutely moral. The people that knew what they were doing the whole time, blood on their hands, they might as well have went in and bashed people's faces in with bats to disfigure them. They're just as guilty, but legally correct. Legally correct. The company followed its fiduciary responsibility by only releasing what it legally had to as it legally had to. He is legally correct. That's how immoral our system is today. But let's go worry about Kim Davis, right? All right, let's go on to another one here. Let's look at a pure prepping question here. Actually, a copy canning question more than anything. This is from Ben. Ben says, check my question is, do you think grocery stores properly rotate stock? Here's the details. I've noticed lately when I buy a canned food and then buy the same cans a few weeks later, the expiration date is the same or before the cans I brought earlier. This is a cause for concern. I know most of the dates are about a year away, but I try to eat the oldest food first, so I have to check the dates in stock uh, for the cans myself. Thanks for all you do, Ben. Um, I've noticed that if you go to, to stores and reach way in the back uh, of, the, of the shelf and, and pull something out from the back, you'll usually find cans that are older, uh, but not all the time. It depends. It depends on the volume of stores doing on individual items, etc., Uh, canned foods don't sell quite at the speed that a lot of other things do in grocery stores. 
And this goes all the way back. I remember one of my jobs as a teenager, I was a stock boy at a grocery store called The Economy in Minersville, Pennsylvania. And, you know, stocking the dairy case was a daily event. Stocking a lot of other things was, was big time. But, you know, cans were, it was pretty easy to keep up with. And it's because people buy, you know, five, six cans of something, they take it home. So there's a little less flow there, even with just-in-time inventory. There's, there's just a le less turnover rate. And then stores don't really give a damn about an expiration date on a canned good because it's always so far out they don't really care. So it's, it's not as important to them as something like a, a gallon of milk that can you know literally expire on the shelf and then go into a loss mode. The other thing is a lot of your grocery stores today, Let's take, uh, we'll just make one up so I don't, because they're all doing the same thing. Let's call it ABC Groceries, but let's pretend it's a big one, right? A national chain. So ABC Groceries in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex might have 50 stores or 100 stores. It, each one of those stores is not getting a truckload of shit from California every day to streamline the inventory process. What they're, what they do, especially in these major markets or in regional markets that aren't quite as big as Dallas or Houston or San Francisco or whatever, they set up their own warehouse. They set up their own warehouse, and they centralize their, their importation from other markets, right? So especially with durable goods that last for a long time, not bread, you know, not, not lettuce, Uh, but a lot of that stuff goes through warehouse processing, too. But when it comes to something like canned goods, well, shit, you could just bring in a trainload of that shit and stick it in there because we know exactly how much we're going to sell. We have computer programs that tell us that. So what happens is that warehouse will get in 100 or 200 pallets of pinto beans in can. And they'll get it all in one batch. It was all made on one day. It was all transported you know, within a day or two of each other. It all comes into this warehouse, and it sits there. And as the stores use it, they draw from that storage. And until that turns over, you generally won't see a date change. So there might be three or four weeks before that cycle completes itself. And they are rotating, but they're rotating at the centralized distribution point. So that forklift that puts a, a case on a, a truck that goes over to ABC uh, Outlet 175, right, is going to pull the, 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 the oldest food first. Now it goes over there. Now some stores, they take it in, it all goes on the shelf. But most stores also have their own backdoor space, right? So they, they keep a certain amount of stuff on hand. Because you can't fit all the food on the shelf at one time. So a pallet of that stuff comes in. And now the ABC stock clerk goes back and, and says, well, I need to bring a case of these pinto beans out, Joe's pinto beans. And what he's supposed to do, and usually you, know, you do this or you get yelled at, you pull all of the Joe's pinto beans that are on the shelf off, right? And you start stacking from the rear with the stuff that just came out of the back, and then you put it back on. And anything that you have a hole in, let's say you don't have enough to fill it all in, you do what's called fronting the merchandise. So you pull it to the front so it's easy for the consumer to get to. And even when you're not stocking, your job is to go through the store. And because I did this as a kid, guys, I used to do this in stores. It took me like five years to get over it, right? I would see stuff that would, like I wasn't going to buy, but it was like, you know, like five were missing, and I would pull it to the front just because it gets in your head to do it. That's how programmed you could become by a job, just saying. Um, and so you'd pull all this stuff to the front, and then you keep adding to the back. So they're doing it, but you have this big 
flow coming through. This is also, though, why when you go to stores that, that don't have a warehouse space, that everything is on the floor because they do such large quantities like a Sam's Club or a Costco, what you'll usually see is a pallet that's being drawn from and a pallet behind it or a stack that's being drawn from and underneath it is a new stack. A lot of times there might be three or four months of additional time if you go to that back stack. Now, they don't like it when you do that, but it's not against the law. It's not against the rules. You can pick whatever you want, and 99% of consumers don't even care. So that is a little tip you can kind of pick up there. But, yeah, it's not the store is not doing the rotation. It's how they're doing the rotation. Is it a concern? Not really, because most of your canned foods are good for five years minimum. Just that, That's another thing. With canned goods, the date on the can is like a date that the manufacturer has to put some date on there. And you have to think about it from a business standpoint, not so much a government standpoint. Though the government comes in here, and I'll, I'll tell you about that at the end. But from a business standpoint, if I'm Campbell's, and I sell a can of pork and beans, good old-fashioned Campbell's pork and beans like you used to cook in a fire and eat when you were fishing like me when I was a kid, and shove Oscar Mayer hot dogs in the can and cook it right in the can, and, and probably the toxins that came out of that can when you did that were terrible. But that's what I, when I was a kid, it's what I used to do. You eat a little bit of the beans cold. And then you chop up a, a couple hot dogs and you shove them in the can. You put the can at the edge of the fire and warm them right up in the can, right? right. So Campbell's, to them, that can is, is two things. It's, it, it's an income source, but as soon as it's exchanged for capital, as soon as it's exchanged for money, it becomes a liability. As long as that can sits out there, if anything goes wrong with it where it becomes in some way bad and it makes somebody sick, they can be sued for it. So that date is, hey, God, you used it after the date on the can, man. Our liability's over. Then the other side is, have you ever noticed that bottled water has an expiration date? Have you ever noticed that? Do you know when water expires? Never. This morning when you picked that bottle of water up out of the kitchen and drank it, you drank dinosaur pee that was recycled. Right? Water is infinite. It goes on forever. It's constantly recycled in the system. And if clean water is in a clean, clean container, nothing goes wrong with it ever. It might get kind of flat. It might get kind of bland. It might taste a little like plastic or whatever it was inside of. But unless something's in there or can get in there, it can't go bad. So why do we have expiration dates on bottled water? The, the answer is, 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 is a state, New Jersey. New Jersey passed the law about, oh, I think a decade and a half ago, somewhere in that range, that said that any and all product for human consumption would be mandated to have an expiration date. And the bottled water people were like, R really? We have to put this on water? And New Jersey said, yes, it's a product for human consumption. But, they said, but water doesn't expire. And New Jersey said, you put any expiration date you want on it, but you got to put something on there. And the water people were probably going to do something like, I don't know, let's put 20, 25 on there or something like that, you know, just whatever makes them happy. And then somebody in, in, in finance or accounting said, well, maybe there's some uh, cost analysis. And let's kick this over to legal. And legal looked at it and went, oh, hell no. Hell no, don't put that on there. And uh, so the, uh, why not? Well, who knows what could happen to that bottle of water? It's a liability as long as it's still out there. You just don't know. But if it hits the expiration date, it ceases to be a liability. It's like having a whole shitload of uncashed-in gift certificates out there that could come flooding in that you don't have the, the, the ability to handle as a, as a retailer. It's another way to look at it. Same kind of thing. You just never know what that thing's going to do. So the bottle of water people were in a conundrum, right? They're like, 
Okay, we don't want to have an infinite liability. But this is a product that with our distribution chains and our stocking and all, we also don't want to have tons of returns and whatever. So what's a safe bet? And everybody got together and said, two years. And pretty much every bottle of bottled water that comes out now is stamped with an expiration date two years after its state of manufacture because of New Jersey. Because without the state, who would make water companies put an expiration date on the plastic bottle of water that you bought for $1.09 from the quick trip? Let's go ahead and take one more before we wrap up today. Maybe we'll cram in two more because this one's pretty simple and pretty easy. Uh, this comes from Chad. says, this is for you or Stephen Harris. Is there a way to get around the spill-proof nozzles on gas cans? I have spilled more gas since these have come into existence than I have the rest of my entire life. They also slow the rate of flow due to the vacuum created. It's faster to pour gas from a new container uh, to one with older nozzles that used to uh, dispense gas than it is to use the new cans themselves. Could I be doing something wrong? Thank you for your podcast and the MSB. Sincerely, Chad. You're not doing anything wrong. They suck. They suck, they suck, and they suck. But yes, you can fix them. Yeah, it's technically illegal, I think, but I don't know that anybody's going to go raid in your house to check what you've done to your gas cans. I'll describe the process, and then I'm going to give you a video where you can learn more, and I'm going to give you a resource that can replace one of the items. Uh, it's either Dual or Double Survivor is the guy that, that has out this video, and I'll look it up and have it in the show notes for you. But basically what you do is, you know, they have these, like, things you have to push a tab forward and, and push down on it to release the nozzle. And there's a little tab thingy there. And what you can do is you just basically cut that tab off. And then you do have to push it, but you don't have to, any kind of special lock. You just push it with your thumb, and it, it makes everything much easier there. That's step one. Step two, and you do this with an empty can, by the way, is on the back side of the can where there used to be a breather valve, you drill a hole in there. And what the double survivor guy does is fish a piece of bailing wire through and use it to pull in a, a valve uh, stem, like for a tire. Like ones where you replace the whole valve stem, you kind of pop it in there, and you, you take the little uh, the, the, the valve out so it's just a tube, and then to keep it sealed, you just put the little end cap cover on it. Well, I found out since then you could actually buy the original little plastic Uh, thingies that just snap shut on Amazon. So I'll have a link to those as well. So you can either use the valve stem like the guy does on the video I'm going to put, or that. And, and that allows you now to open uh, that thing so there's not a vacuum, and then just push down and depress and pour it, and they actually work pretty good. Now, the, the problem is the way the new cans are designed. There's like this down little breast in them where you can't ever get the actual last bit of gasoline out of them But this makes it so much better. Personally, I'm a big fan of NATO jerry cans. And what you call a donkey dick to go on them. It makes things a lot easier. And I'm also a big fan of what Stephen Harris teaches, which is you get a, a siphon bulb for like an outboard motor, and you get some fuel line. Okay? And you put the fuel line, so this is rubber fuel line, And you put that onto the siphon bulb. So this is exactly what you would use to prime an outboard motor when you start an outboard motor. Anybody that's ever had a boat knows how these work. You've got a line going to the, the fuel tank, and you've got a line going to the, to the motor, and there's a bulb in the middle with an arrow that points toward the motor. If it points toward the tank, you're doing it wrong. And you pump it until it builds up pressure, and then that primes the, the motor. So when you start the boat, there's gas right there, boom, and then it starts drawing its own fuel. Okay. Well, what you do with one of these is you take your big old heavy five-gallon jerry can, You set it up like on the roof of your truck or your toolbox or the top of your car. 
and you stick your, your one end of the fuel line in there, and then you put the other line into your, your gas tank, and you go pump, 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 pump till it builds up. It turns into a siphon, and it just runs in, and you don't have to pour anything. And if you want the last little bit out, you throw your donkey dick on there. That's what it's called, guys. I'm sorry. You stick it in the tank, and you dump the rest of it in there. So I like the NATO cans, but, you know, they're expensive. And these, these poly cans are actually pretty decent once you modify them. So, again, I'll put the video of the modifications And I'll put the link where instead of using the tire valve stem, you can use the original little thumb pushy thingies in there. But I definitely tell you that I think a gas can works a hell of a lot better after you fix it. And we will cram one more in today. Here's one from someone who just calls himself erroneous. It says, here you go, buddy, another confirmation for your theories. And this is an article On the top ten careers with the most psychopaths in them is your job on the list. Let me uh, read this to you. When it comes, to, What comes to mind when you picture a psychopath? A crazy axe murderer? Psychopaths don't always fit that mold. The clinical diagnosis is a person who has shallow emotions or lacks empathy. Sound like corporate America is loaded with them. Kevin Dutton, a research psychologist at the University of Oxford, has dedicated much of his life to studying the brains of psychopaths. And he's been able to piece together a list of the most likely professions psychopaths end up in. Is your career on the list? Number one, CEOs. Corporate America is loaded with brutal metaphors. When you succeed, it's because you were cutthroat and ended up making a killing. Now you're known as a shark. Doesn't that sound just like the wonderful place for a psychopath? I'm pure. Plenty of CEOs are great people. But several studies suggest that 4% of CEOs qualify as a psychopath. That's four times as many people as the general population. <clears throat> lawyer. There are lots of heartless lawyer jokes, but maybe some credence to them. Many lawyers exhibit signs of psychopathy, which makes lying, cheating, and obsessing with profit nothing to bat an eye at. As one lawyer uh, he interviewed said, Deep inside me, there's a serial killer lurking somewhere. But I keep him amused with cocaine, Formula One, booty calls, and cruciating cross-examination. Media, radio, and television. Makes sense, right? Obviously, not everyone in the media industry scores high on the psychopath meter. But if you think of some of the most prominent psychopathic personalities in our world right now, it all seems to make sense. Four, salespeople. In working with monsters, how to identify and protect yourself from the workplace psychopath, John Clark says that having a psychopath on your team can be a really good thing. The psychopath is very likely to be a good salesperson. If they're intelligent as well as glib and superficial, Clark writes, in fact, a study done in 2001 by Mark Harmer found the superior sales performance was associated with higher levels of narcissism, egocentric and grandiose, sociopathy and cognitive empathy. The drawback there is that you're bound to run into their self-centered attitude. They're also more likely to exploit the system in which they work. Surgeons. This one really supplied, surprised me. Doctors and nurses landed on the list of careers with a few psychopaths, but surgeons are the ones with the most psychopathic around. In a 2014 piece in Pacific Standard, Wen Shen states, The trouble with surgeons is many are abrasive, abusive, and wildly self-centered, so much so that observers have speculated they, they suffer from psychopathic disorders. She thinks this can be traced back to when surgery was performed without anesthesia, but a surgeon meant, being a surgeon meant you had to operate around a soundtrack of screams and keeping it cool. There's an active push for kinder surgeons today. Journalist Jeff Cash, a freelance writer, once wrote that a hint of psychopathy is actually 
a prerequisite for public purpose journalism. Psychopathy can creep in all too easily in a world of journalism, as any reporter who's had after-hours fight with some obnoxious public relations officer can attest to. That's pretty much all of them, by the way. Seeing your name in a national newspaper on a daily basis is enough to turn even the most humble being into a fountain of narcissism. And if you think that's bad, just imagine how much appearing on national television would contribute to one's superiority complex. I can see that being a case. Police officer. Most disturbingly, the police charged with keeping the peace may be the most likely ones to shatter it. According to Public Domestic Violence, a handbook for victims, women suffer domestic abuse in at least 40% of police officer families. I didn't make it up, folks. Don't be mad at me. Additionally, police families are two to four times more likely than the general population to experience domestic violence. A clergy, this one pretty amusing to me, the clergy is supposed to promote the gospel and make the world better, but we saw as with the Catholic Church child sex scandals, psychopathy was at play, first in the act of molesting these children, then in the church's desire to cover it all up. Psychopaths may be attracted to the clergy because of easy access to victims. Many televangelists and preachers have been accused of megalomaniac behavior like Ted Howard, Bill Gothard, Creflo Dollar and Geronimo Aguilar. Yes, Creflo Dollar. That is a real televangelist, folks. Uh, chefs. Chef Gordon Ramsay once told Vanity Fair that chefs are nutters. They are self-obsessed, delicate, dainty, insecure little souls and absolute psychopaths, Everyone, every last one of them. Note he's a chef talking about himself. Uh, it's like such a strange profession for that kind of behavior, but Anthony Bourdain perhaps correctly chalked it up to a combination of working with assholes and being a perfectionist. Some chefs borrow money. They do everything they can. They kill themselves in the accumulation of a career working 100 hours a week or more. They finally open a place within eight minutes of opening. Some asshole has posted a Yelp, worst meal ever. You can understand why they go insane and do everything they can to ameliorate that. Ten, civil servants. This certainly isn't out of the realm of possibility that a DMV worker might be a kind of psychopath. There's a power in the role of civil servants, and psychopaths often single-mindedly crave power. Dennis Rader, who was a self-dubbed BTK killer, was a census field operations supervisor in Kansas. He was later a dog catcher from Wikipedia. Quote, neighbors recalled him being someone overzealous and extremely strict. One neighbor complained that he euthanized her dog for no reason. End quote. Yikes. But this probably doesn't come as a shock, right? No, it doesn't come as a shock to me. It doesn't at all. And this is, this is what I like about this list. Jack Spierko's former profession and something that he still speaks very highly of learning how to do is on here, sales. The sales profession. Now, note that the CEO kind of topped the list and 4% of CEOs were psychopaths. 4%. Uh, which is four times the, the normal numbers. Like 1% of people are psychopaths, but 4% of CEOs are psychopaths. Uh, that number might be a little bit low, but th what I'm saying is it leaves a lot of room for all of these professions for people to be in them and not be psychopaths. But a salesperson, it's actually very beneficial to be psychopathic, to lack empathy. The less empathy you have, the better of a salesperson you'll be numbers-wise, which is part of why I quit. And to be honest, part of why I was good. I've said this before. Uh, I grew up having a condition that they didn't really diagnose very well at the time, thank God, because the last thing I needed was to be told you have a problem and an excuse. But it's called Asperger's, and now it's just part of the autism spectrum disorder, which I think is bullshit. But when I look at the characteristics of someone with Asperger's disorder, I'm 100% across the board. I, I mean, every single thing in it. It's just blow you away. When I look at it today, I don't behave anything like that. 
but I, it's because I did what you would call a lot of self-therapy and a self-diagnosis and self-correction. But one of the things with, with, with people with Asperger's is a lack of empathy. But it's not a typical lack of empathy. It's not a psychopath's lack of empathy. It's different. The psychopath lacks empathy because they just do. They just don't give a shit. I care about me, not you. Okay? People with Asperger's tend to lack empathy because they don't recognize pain in other people. They, they, or the, and when they do hurt another person's feelings, they just don't get it. And I'm telling you, I still struggle with this today because people get their, their pants in a wad over stuff that I, I just, I'm like, really? I've upset you? What's wrong with you? Right? And, and I've worked really hard. And if you want to be a good husband and father, you gotta, you gotta correct certain things. And for me, that was one of them. And I'll tell you what, I was correcting this through my sales career. And as I corrected it, I became more miserable as a salesperson. Not because I wasn't good at sales, not because I don't like creating deals that are mutually beneficial, but because the people pushing me for a bigger number didn't care about any of those things. This is the key with psychopathy. It's not that salespeople are psychopaths. It's the salespeople that rise to the top are. It's not that surgeons are psychopaths, but the ones that end up specifying legislation as consultants The ones that end up at the absolute top of the chain are. It's not that lawyers are psychopaths, but the ones that are either get into lobbying or government itself. It's not that people in the media are all psychopaths, but they're the ones that end up at the top of the heap. It's not that journalists are psychopaths, but they're the ones that get the columns. It's not police officers that are psychopaths, but they're the ones that commit the offense. It's not that clergy are psychopaths, but when you have a psychopathic clergyman or a psychopathic police officer, the damage they can do is so much greater because of the cloak and the illusion that they are safe people to deal with and the power that they hold with it. Chefs, I don't know. I don't have a huge opinion on that one, though. I would have seen the way kitchens are run. It seems like the psychopath that doesn't care about anybody's feelings would become the top chef. Civil servants, no doubt. And they talk about people like working at DMV and all here, but I think we need to broaden civil servants to the totality. Senators, House of Representatives members, and bureaucrats from every level from top to bottom. And what they can do, and the psychopaths rise to the top. It's not just that these professions attract psychopaths. It's that they excel in them. And I can tell you, it became far more difficult to sell at the corporate level when I had empathy. Um, one of the movements out there that I get a lot from, though I don't completely agree with, is the zeitgeist movement. And in zeitgeist moving forward, they have uh, some psychologist talking. And he said that they did a study on investors. And the investors that were moderately brain damaged were the most successful investors. And by brain damaged, he means psychopathy. Because I don't care who I'm hurting when I do this. So I just do what works. That's why of all of these professions, the one that I think might be the best place for psychopaths to be, if they're good, is surgeons. Because that's what a surgeon has to do. I know this is going to hurt, but I have to do it anyway. Because in the end, and, and I think there's a lot of really great surgeons out there, don't get me wrong. 
But I think some of the surgeons to do the best work have a, a, a form of psychopathy. Because it's not, oh, I get to feel good because this person lives. I can make this person live. It's a God, God complex. There was a movie about it with a surgeon. I can't remember what the name of it was. It might have been malpractice or something like that. But the, the doctor, the surgeon, and it says, when, when the loved ones of this person on my table hits the floor and prays to God, who do you think they're praying to? God, that's an old movie. I can't remember the name of it. I can see the guy's face in my head. They did one of the Baldwin's. Uh, what's his name? Alec. Alec Baldwin was in it when he was young. Um, Malice. Malice. Let me play that for you right now, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. This is him. I think it's in court or something. I'll find it, and, and let me get this on the air for you. The question is, do I have a God complex? Dr. Kessler says yes. Which makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you have the vaguest clue as to how talented someone has to be to lead a surgical team. I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England. And I am never, ever sick at sea. So I ask you, when someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? Now, you go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis. And you go to your church, and with any luck, you might win the annual raffle. But if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. Okay, now to, to be completely fair, all right, to be completely fair there... It's important to understand that in that context of that movie, he was taking a dive, uh, if I remember right. Like, he was supposed to lose a lawsuit because there was like this, this collusion going on with this woman who was married to a guy, and they were suing him, and he would lose, and then they'd take off together, leave the other guy behind, and take all the money. Uh, but I do think there's a certain amount of reality to that. that, that there is a certain amount of, of arrogance with a surgeon that says... I literally decide who lives and who dies. And that's something that would be attractive to a psychopath that maybe was smart enough to realize their deficiency and say, I'm going to make this a strength. And at least what I'm going to do here is going to make people's lives better. If they can think deep enough to think that way. Because I believe that psychopathy is like most other disorders. And the question isn't, is the person sick? It's how sick are they. So you could be born without the ability to use your legs very well. And a doctor might say that you might not be able to walk. But with braces and therapy and things like that, the person that's told that ends up, you know, a sprinter in, in the future, in, in competitive sprinting, and they're good at it, right? But a person could also be born in a way that nothing we can do technologically right now will ever make them walk. 
a person can be in see these the, the this tendency can either be from birth or it can be from environmental damage or it can be from physical damage. So a person can be traumatized to a point where they they lose empathy or they can be physically injured in a way that they lose empathy. And how psychopathic they really are is dependent on how bad that damage is. It's not natural. It's not a normal thing for people to be psychopaths. That's why it's 1% of the population. Though I believe that psychopaths are good enough at hiding themselves, that the number's actually higher, probably significantly higher. I realize if it was 2%, that would be double the number. And, you know, I, I know people in law enforcement get upset with me, but do you guys understand the damage that 1% or 2% of your ranks represents as a bona fide psychopath, the power that they have that a CEO doesn't, that a lawyer doesn't, that the media doesn't, that a salesperson doesn't, that a journalist doesn't, that a chef doesn't, that, a, that, that, that even a, a lawmaker has so many, so many hoops they have to jump through. They can only do so much unless they're a dictator. But a guy with a badge and a gun, the authority of the state, and a bunch of other people that will back him, with a gun and a badge and a taser and pepper spray. It's such a danger. It's such a danger. So I'll end today with something I've said before to all of you guys in law enforcement. Stop covering the asses of the people that do not deserve the honor of wearing the uniform and carrying the badge. And don't tell me you don't do it. Because you might not do it individually, but by and large, the law enforcement community does it. And you got two choices with this if you want to be respected again. Stand up publicly and start turning in the scum within your ranks that violate their oath and break their oath. Or good old-fashioned woodshed. But I can tell you neither one of those is happening right now. Neither one of those is happening. There's too many instances of abuse. And people just want to write it off as, well, everybody's like baiting cops in here. No, what it is is everybody has a video camera today and we're seeing what actually happens. I saw a video recently of a, of, a, of a jail guard, a lady sitting handcuffed, handcuffed, on a bench. He says something to her, she says something back he doesn't like, and she gets kicked in the jaw and knocked to the ground with a single kick to the face. I don't care what she said. There's no call for that. There's no call for that. The truth is there's psychopaths among us, and there's psychopaths in every profession, but this list is no surprise to me. The average psychopath is not in prison. The average psychopath has a respectable job. Generally, when people are psychopathic, the primary difference between a psychopath and a non-psychopath is not that the psychopath wants to kill people. That's not the difference. The difference is the psychopath has a higher self-interest than the non-psychopath. I don't care who I have to hurt to get what I want. That is the, that is the hallmark of a psychopath. And I believe we have multiple types. I think the, the, the lowest number of all psychopaths are actually genetic. They're just born wrong. I believe the majority are environmentally created. And they could be cured, but it depends on how bad the damage is. And these people, what they do is they use an intelligence and a self-serving instinct to further their own agendas. And that's what makes them dangerous. 
If they were all axe-wielding maniacs like the guy that wrote this article starts out with, it would be really easy to identify them. You would just say, that there's one right there. Let's put a bullet in them, bury them in the ground. We ain't got any more problems. But when they have the badge or the authority of the state through a gavel as a judge or the ability to make law or the ability when they hit the highest levels of the corporate world to influence law and influence what happens to other people, when they become CEOs of companies that make poison for a living, we have a real problem. What do we do about it? Take responsibility for ourselves. Take responsibility for ourselves and for each other. Those of you that say, I'm not my brother's keeper, you need to be. Because that's what the psychopath says at his heart. It's not my responsibility what happens to these people over here. I have a job to do and I'm going to do it. Well, that job as a human being is to look after each other. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm
Across the clouds I see my shadow fly 